My name is Matt Luoyan. Uh, if we've not met, uh, I'm the pastor of Liberty Church uh, here in Harrisburg. It's an honor to have you with us this morning. Um, and like Jake and Mallory mentioned, these, uh, these new bulletins, let me just draw your attention back to that. We have some really talented folks in our midst. Um, this is the work of Ray Reek. Uh, so Ray did a fantastic job putting together um, a new image for the new series that we're beginning today in the book of Daniel. Um, there's a lot more intricacy in that. I'm going to have Ray maybe like post on Facebook and explain how much intricacy went into his thought process of doing this because there's a real art. It's you know real art to doing that. So um, so if you see Ray, thank him for the work he does. We have a lot of other artists in our midst that do great work. Thank them for the work they do. It adds a ton to uh, our experience of worship in different forms. So if you have Bibles, go ahead and turn to the Book of Daniel. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, it starts on page 737. You can make your way there. We're kicking off a, a, a new series this morning uh, in the book of Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel for the next nine or ten weeks or so. And let's just start, as you're turning there, with this. Uh, Daniel is a part of the Bible where we as Christians are very likely to miss the point. It's a book in the Bible where we're very likely to miss the point. If you have a background in the church, maybe even if you don't have any background in the church, what's the thing that comes to mind when you think about the book of Daniel? The lion's den, right? The lion's den. Or maybe um, the fiery furnace, you know? Either way, a couple acts of what I'm going to call bold faith, a couple actions of bold faith in the face of your own demise. And those bold acts of faith, they do figure very prominently in the book of Daniel. We're going to get there as we go through this series. But to actually make them the focal point is really to miss the deeper meaning that's there in the book of Daniel. We're going to read here in a moment from Daniel 1, and you're going to hear that Daniel is taken from his homeland of Judah into exile in the third year of King Jehoiakim. That's 605 B.C. 605 B.C. And we're going to read at the end of Daniel 1, that he's there until the end, or sorry, until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus, which is 539 B.C. So, 66 years, which means that for almost every single one of us in the room, there are a couple exceptions, but almost every single one of us, Daniel is in exile longer than you have been alive. And for some of you, significantly longer than you've been alive. So Daniel is not primarily about a couple acts of bold, defiant faith. Much more than that, Daniel is actually about a posture and a perseverance for the long haul. Daniel is about God enabling his people to persevere and enabling them to engage with that culture with the right posture for as long as they're in exile. And here's why we need this. Here's why at least I need this, and maybe you'll resonate with this too. I find myself wishing often that... Devotion to God was simply a matter of a couple acts of bold faith. Like, wouldn't that be easier? Wouldn't it be easier if what our lives were meant to look like as Christians, as people who try to follow Jesus faithfully, if that were just about a couple bold actions of faith, a couple key crossroad moments in our lives? I think that's the way we actually operate oftentimes as Christians. We can slip into thinking that way. But if that's our outlook then where our hearts and where our minds inevitably go is to, to cruise control. We slip into cruise control, or we just coast along. 
Maybe we hide out from the rest of the world. Maybe we slip into this mindset where we're just preparing ourselves, waiting for these one or two key crossroad moments where bold and defiant faith is is called for. Whatever the equivalent of the lion's den experience would look like for you and me in, in this day and age. But that's actually not the way that Daniel lives his life in exile. Long before we encounter the lion's den episode in Daniel, long before there's a lion's den, you see Daniel immersed and enmeshed into the culture of the Babylonians. And you see him constantly having to navigate how to maintain this undivided devotion to God in the midst of a culture, in the midst of a people who are opposed to that God. So the question for Daniel is never this, is merely one of preparation. You know, his, his question is not primarily, like, will I be ready when the lion's den moment comes? His question is actually, what does the right posture and what does perseverance look like for me now, today, in this very moment? So that's where the book of Daniel has so much to offer you and me today, even though the specifics of the cultural context are so different. So we're going to jump in this morning. We're going to read uh, Daniel chapter 1. You can follow along with me as I read that. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility, youth without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. 
And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in, his king, that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the historical examples of your people who have gone before us and the lessons that we can learn from them and the way we can perceive your work in their lives and through their lives. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts this morning to learn. Break up in our hearts the hardness that we have. Help us to see what it is that you've invited us and called us into as your people in this day, in this time, in this place. Let me pray that in your name. Amen. So what are the situations for you in your life where you feel completely out of place? A couple weeks ago, uh, I was at a gun range for the second time ever in my life. And I have nothing against guns, uh, but I have never owned a gun. Uh, I have spent very little time around people who shoot guns. And so uh, when I went, I did, I did go to college in Texas, so as a, as a self-respecting resident of Texas for a few years, you know, bachelor parties for guys in Texas often involve shotguns and skeet shooting. So I've been around guns a little bit, but I went to the gun range a couple weeks ago. There were a couple uh, ex-special forces guys there, a couple hunters there. And so it was immediately obvious that, like, I was the one that was out of place. You know, which one of these is not like the other? It's this guy. Think about a time where you felt out of place. Okay, what did that feel like? What was that experience like? What did you experience in that moment? If you were to crank up the intensity on that, then you'd begin to know a little bit of what it feels like to be in exile. And when we meet Daniel and his friends, that's where they are. They're in exile. And they've been forcibly removed from their homeland, from Judah, which is the, the southern kingdom of Israel. And they've been taken to Babylon. So it's not just this hour or two long experience of feeling completely out of place. It's being taken from your home. It's being taken from your place of familiarity and comfort and people you know and familiar objects and locations. It's being taken from all of that and prevented from returning there for an extended period of time. So it's really jolting. It's traumatic. How do you cope when you're in exile like that? It's probably an intensified version of how you and I cope when we feel completely out of place. We either do whatever we can to escape, or we do whatever we can to conform. So we either shut down, you know, we hide, we try to run away, or we try to completely blend in. You know, we kind of become a chameleon, just try to blend in so that we don't stand out as being so different. But we see something radically different in Daniel and these other people, these other exiles in Babylon. We see them embrace the exile. So without succumbing to the temptation to just conform and become Babylonian completely, they embrace the fact that they're in exile. That doesn't mean that they're they're happy about it. Uh, It doesn't mean that they pretend that it's easy or comfortable, that they're glad that they're there. But what we see in the book of Daniel, and it starts from this very first chapter, is that the people of God, they don't just endure exile. They don't just survive exile. As the people of God, they embrace exile. 
And how is that possible? How do you embrace exile as traumatic as it is? There's three things that we see in Daniel chapter 1. We can embrace exile because exile comes from God. We can embrace exile because God grants us favor to thrive in the midst of it. And we can embrace exile because the kingdom of God triumphs through exile. So those are the three things we're going to look at the rest of our time this morning. So first, we embrace exile because it comes from God. Look at verse 2 again. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, or into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Uh, Daniel and the rest of these Israelite men and women, they don't end up in exile by accident. They don't end up there by accident. It's actually the, the very direct and involved active work of God. It says God gave Judah over to be conquered by the Babylonians. Okay? Part of that is because it's a consequence for their faithlessness to God. Like we confessed this morning, we have a heart, uh, a factory in our hearts, like John Calvin said, that produces idols. And that's been true for humanity for all of time. So the Israelites worshipped other gods. They went after other gods. And a consequence of that was God giving Jerusalem into the hands of the Babylonians. But also, in a mysterious way, this was how God was at work in the world, advancing his purposes, advancing his redemption through history. In the moment, that was all but impossible to see. In fact, the only thing that seems to be happening here in Daniel chapter 1 is the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. So this initial attack on Jerusalem, this initial exile of a few key people, it's the first step of a longer process of what it looks like to dismantle an entire society and subject an entire society to the, to the rule of another, to Babylonian rule. So consider the strategy of this for, for just a second. If you're an ancient Near East ruler, a one-time battle or a one-time war doesn't necessarily dismantle a society. Because if you leave anybody... If there are any survivors, if anybody's left standing, they just hide out and they regroup and their cause becomes stronger and so they fight even harder when they bounce back. So the way that you dismantle a society, if you really want to destroy it, takes more than just military might. So in this initial exile, the Babylonians, they target the best and the brightest among the Israelite people. Uh, they target the ones who come from the right families, the ones who are physically attractive, the ones who are incredibly intelligent, the ones who uh, show promise, the ones who have the ability to learn and to adapt quickly. And from there, they essentially begin a process of a complete overhaul of their identity, an identity and a cultural rewiring. They're given new names. They're taught a new language. There's an entire new program of study. Uh, they're given new luxury. You know, they're not treated as you might expect an exiled, subjugated group of people to be treated. They're given great food and great accommodations and great tutors. But it isn't kindness for kindness' sake. It's actually an attempt to wipe out their, their past identity. And actually, these kinds of principles still are at work very much in our, in our world today. Have you ever heard of the concept of brain drain? What's brain drain? Brain drain is when the best and brightest and the folks with the most potential from a certain area begin to leave in droves. And I don't know if you were aware of this or not, central Pennsylvania actually has suffered and does suffer from this. We suffer from brain drain. 
Uh, when most people think about like the centers of influence and the centers of culture and the centers of learning and leadership, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania is not at the top of the list for most people. I know that's a shock to everyone. Harrisburg does not make the top of the list. Consequently, people, and especially young people who grow up here, who show promise and show potential in things like leadership and all kinds of different trades, they don't necessarily feel drawn to plant themselves here for long periods of time. They tend to instead be drawn to places like Philadelphia and New York City and Washington, D.C. and even Baltimore and Pittsburgh and places like that. Harrisburg falls down the list a little bit. If that happens unchecked for an extended period of time, what's the result? Gradually, it takes a long time, but gradually, we're left with fewer and fewer of the kinds of people that we would need to lead a thriving society. And so over time, that place that's experiencing and suffering from brain drain becomes not as fun, not, a, not as great a place to work or to live or to play. Maybe it's a place where we don't want our own young people growing up, our own kids growing up, so maybe we move away. Along with lots of other people who would be the ones that had the potential to actually lead a turnaround, to actually contribute to the thriving of a society. And eventually it enters this downward spiral that's all but impossible to reverse. In addition to the military force the Babylonians use, that's the tactic that they're using with the Israelites. They relocate the highest potential young Israelites to Babylon. They try to turn them into Babylonians so that Israel will go into this death spiral and never come out of it. That the ones who maybe could preserve and prolong Israelite life and culture are now Babylonian for all all intents and purposes. The problem with that, though, is that Daniel and his friends, they refuse to become completely Babylonian. They refuse to become Babylonian. Most significantly, they cling to their devotion to God. And they learn to embrace their exile as the work of God, coming from the hand of God. So likewise, what does that mean for us today? As the people of God in this time and place, we need to learn to see and believe deeply that we're not in this time and place by accident. It's not a mistake. Uh, The book of Daniel has a lot to teach us about what I'm going to call a theology of place. And what do I mean by that, a theology of place? What I mean by that is that we need a deep belief that God really has been at work to establish our time and our location, that you and I are here because God has worked in such a way that we are here. And that God has very intentional purposes in that. And when we look at books like Daniel, we look at actually, if we were to zoom out and see the big picture of Scripture, then there's a paradigm that emerges that helps us develop this deep appreciation of place, this theology of place, and it's this. That we have a place, that this isn't it, and yet that this is it. We have a place, this isn't it, this is it. So we have a place. You know, the, the people of God are called citizens of heaven. That's our place. That's our ultimate home. So that means that this place is not our place. Like, this is not, for you and I, home, ultimately. As the people of God, we're here, but 2015 in central Pennsylvania is not our ultimate home. So we're always, just like the people of God forever have, we're always going to feel a little bit like strangers and aliens, like exiles in this place. And yet, though this place is not our place, this place is our place. You with me on that? This is our place. 
God has put us here. We're not here by some kind of accident. So this isn't just some kind of waiting place. This isn't some kind of purgatory where we just hang out for real life to begin somewhere else. Now this place, because the kingdom of God intersects the here and now, this place has meaning. This place has purpose. So we have a place. This isn't it. But because God has sent us here, this is our place. And just like it did for Daniel... The reality that exile comes from God helps us to embrace our exile. Second, we embrace exile because God grants us favor to thrive in the midst of it. Right from the start here in Daniel 1, Daniel has to start making these decisions about what aspects of Babylon he's going to receive and what aspects of Babylon he's going to reject. What hill is he going to die on? Where is he going to stand his ground? And he... He, he actually goes along with a lot of this. He applies himself to the new language, to the new program of study. He doesn't put up a fight about being called by a different name. But he does draw the line here when it comes to what? To food, to wine. Okay, why does he do that? It says in verse 8, he resolved he would not defile himself with the king's food and wine. So he opts for vegetables and water instead. It's not that meat and that wine are inherently bad. It's not that. Israelite feasts of celebration, Israelite feasts of worship to God included those very same things. So Christians tend to do something really silly with this at times. Please don't do something silly with this. Like don't start a blog called like the Daniel Diet and try to convince everybody why it's biblical like not to eat meat and drink wine but to eat vegetables and drink water instead. Okay? Don't do, don't do anything silly with it. Things... Most things are neutral. Most things are not inherently good or inherently bad. Food is is neutral in and of itself. Wine is neutral in and of itself. But each and every time that we use things in a given instance, it's not neutral. The specific way we use it, the purpose we use it for, makes all the difference in the world. And it can either be used to give honor, to give glory to God or to give honor and to give glory to some other lesser false god, some idol. From all we can tell, for Daniel to eat this particular food, to drink this particular wine in this specific instance, would be equivalent to giving honor, to giving glory to either the king of Babylon or the kingdom of Babylon or something like that. So Daniel abstains. But notice his posture as he does that. Notice how he does that. I said at the beginning, what we learned from Daniel is not just how to you know, stare down your death with bold faith, but actually how, we, how to have perseverance with the right posture for the long haul. Daniel doesn't start a war on Babylonian food and wine. He doesn't start a war on Babylonian culture. He just asks. He just asks. He respects the servants who have charge over him. He respects the position that they have with him. And he asks for something different. What happens? God pours out favor on him. God gives Daniel favor, gives him compassion in the sight of those who are in charge of his care. As an exiled, subjugated Israelite, like what place does he have to ask for something? He has no place to ask for anything, but because God grants him favor, he asks, he's given a chance to test out this different diet for 10 days. So the second reason that the people of God embrace exile is because God gives us favor to thrive in the place 
of exile. Now, it's not a guarantee. Some people in exile have a terrible existence there. It's not a guarantee, but it is a pattern of how God works in and through his people. A couple specific ways we see this in the story of Daniel. He gives Daniel favor to thrive with these key relational connections. So God fills the heart of these servants with compassion, with favor toward Daniel, toward his friends. Later, he fills the heart of the king of Babylon with appreciation for Daniel. So God sometimes and often grants favor through these favorable relationships with people of position, people in key places, gatekeepers, that open doors for people like you and me. God also grants favor to thrive through abilities and through opportunities. So these key relationships and also through abilities and opportunities. Verse 17 here says that God gives these men learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And he gives Daniel specific abilities to interpret visions, to interpret dreams. And God pours out so much favor on them that when the king checks in on them three years later, it says that he finds them ten times better than everybody else in the kingdom of Babylon. Now, it's not always that drastic or that spectacular, but really the same pattern holds true for the people of God today. And each and every one of you have gifts, have abilities, and have opportunities to use those in this time and in this place. They're actually tailored by God in his design for this particular time and this particular place. So Daniel's specific ability to interpret dreams and visions is really relevant in Babylon because the Babylonians valued the magic arts at such a, such a high level. You know, that won't get you very far in central Pennsylvania. If you, if you can interpret dreams and visions, we had a, a psychic medium that shared one of the offices at the Juice and Grind where our church office is, and he was only there for a month, and then he shut down and went somewhere else. That gift isn't as appreciated in central Pennsylvania like it was in Babylon. But God has given you and me gifts, and he has sent us into this exile with those gifts. And if we see that, if we see the favor that he's poured out on us to thrive with those gifts and abilities and opportunities, we'll learn to embrace our exile. We'll be able to immerse ourselves in culture and become those who shape it, become those who influence it, maybe even, and I would love for you to dream with me about this, maybe even from the highest levels of influence that our society has to offer. I've been thinking and praying a lot in recent weeks about the unique and specific contribution that Liberty Church can pursue here together in the Harrisburg region. I'll never claim to have like a perfect grasp of that. It'll always be multifaceted. It'll never be just like the one silver bullet. But one of the things that I feel like God keeps drawing me back to over and over again is that we are a church with a disproportionately high number of influencers and potential influencers in our midst. We have a disproportionately high number, high level of education represented here in this room. We have a disproportionate number of people with established places and positions in this community and places of influence. Business professionals, medical professionals, educators, counselors, people with writing abilities, people with artistic abilities, people with musical abilities, people with communication abilities, people with leadership and entrepreneurial skills and all kinds of other skills. Maybe you're aware of this, maybe you're not. That's not typical. 
That's not average. Like, we are not an average cross-section of the people that live in the greater Harrisburg region. So the question becomes, will we see that as the favor of God given to us to thrive in our place of exile? And without neglecting other critical things that the church is called to do and be, because there are lots of them, and caring for the poor and the marginalized is one of the highest priorities in the New Testament. So I don't mean throw that out. But will we use the abilities and the opportunities of education and of influence that God has given to us in a way that serves the common good of this region? Because it's really important that we also understand what it means to thrive. We can get off the rails with a faulty definition of thriving here if we're not careful. A few years actually after these exiles are sent to Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah writes a letter to exiles that are there. There's more exiles there. The, the Babylonians exile the Israelites in stages. And Jeremiah writes this letter to the exiles. It's in Jeremiah 29. And he writes to them and he reminds them that in the welfare of Babylon, the Israelites will find their own welfare. So seek the good of that place because in its welfare, in its thriving, you will find your own thriving. And it's really important for you and I to see that this is the way that God designs exile to work. It's not the other way around. By default, most of us pursue and seek our own thriving first. And it tends to, to take a bent toward like material wealth and comfort and leisure. And if that then happens to have beneficial impact on the community around us, great. We're all for that. But we start with us and hope it trickles outward. But the design of God is actually the opposite of that. God would call his people to seek the good of the greater, of the whole place first, and find their thriving as a subset of that. So for us, who God has given this specific and unique favor, the influence, potential influence, will we see that as a gift that God has given us? Will we see that as the favor of God? Will we embrace our exile? Will we run into it? seeking these opportunities for this place, this region to thrive. God has sent us into this place for the welfare of the whole, of the whole society. So let's find our thriving as we seek the thriving of the greater central Pennsylvania region. Thirdly, lastly, we embrace exile because the kingdom of God triumphs through it. It triumphs through it. Look at verse 21 again really quickly. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Doesn't seem like a particularly significant verse. There's a lot packed into those few words at the end of Daniel 1. For one, it shows how long Daniel's there, 66 years. But also, Cyrus is not a Babylonian. Like, it's not just a statement of succession. It's not saying, like, Barack Obama is the president after George W. Bush. Cyrus is a Persian king, different nation. And he's become king in Babylon because Babylon itself has now been conquered. So this verse, and particularly as it's included at the end of chapter 1, not the end of the book, like you might imagine, the end of chapter 1, it's making a statement. And the statement it's making is that through God's power, the people of God outlast the kingdoms of this world. Through God's power, the people of God outlast the kingdoms of this world. So Babylon can forcibly exile Daniel and these other men and women. It can tear down the walls of Jerusalem. 
But at the end of the day, it's Daniel who's left standing, not Babylon. Exile is a display of the subversive power of God. Exile is a display of the subversive power of God. And here's what I mean by that. Exile does not look like power. It looks like defeat. It looks like a death sentence. But it's so far from a death sentence. It's actually a means that God has used time and again in the history of his redemption to advance his purposes and to open the eyes of entire new populations of people to his existence, to his work in the world. So Joseph in Egypt, sold by his brothers into slavery, he goes there and that becomes God's means of preserving life, not only for the Egyptians but for the Israelites as well. The Israelites in Babylon. The Israelites of people like Daniel lead to Israelite advisors at the highest levels of Babylonian government. And in those 66 years of exile with people in positions like Daniel was, how many people get to encounter the one true God that otherwise never would have? The early church. Fast forward some years from this. The early church. Do you know what the most effective tool of spreading the gospel was for the early church after Jesus ascended back into heaven? Persecution and exile. Persecution and exile. A persecution breaks out in Jerusalem. Hundreds and hundreds of Christians are sent all over the world and they take the gospel with them to new communities and new churches emerge. Fast forward from there. St. Patrick in Ireland. Long before we drank green beer in his honor. He was captured by raiders, taken to Ireland as a slave. He escaped, but then... God gave him a vision, sent him back into Ireland as a missionary. And through his work there, thousands of Irishmen and women became Christians. And Ireland actually became a hub, a center of Christian learning and Christian missions to, to the world around it. And even in recent decades, the ways that the kingdom of God advances through displacement, through persecution, through forced relocation, through refugee populations... All of these are forms of exile through which the kingdom of God advances. So exile looks like defeat, but exile in the hands of God is subversive power. It's the triumph of the kingdom of God. And you know what the best picture of that is? It's the subversive work of God in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, you and I can embrace exile because God has embraced exile for us. Because what's the story of Jesus if not a story of exile? The one by whom the world came into existence, humbling himself, leaving the protection, leaving the perfection of heaven, and taking the form of a servant, entering into the exile, entering into the fracture and the corruption of our sin, entering into the exile of the cross, where the Father turns his face away. What is more of an exile than that? It looks like defeat. To every eye that looked upon it when it happened, the cross looks like defeat. It looks like sin and Satan and death have won. It looks like a death sentence for the people of God. But in that exile, and we know this looking back on it, in that exile is the once and for all triumph of the kingdom of God. So Jesus had a place. This wasn't it. And yet, this place of exile was very much the place that he was meant to be. He had to come 
to seek and to save what was lost, you and I who were lost. He had to come to fix and redeem that which was beyond fixing and redeeming itself. And through his exile, Jesus secures salvation for the people of God. So because of that, may we, who by faith in him, have been given a place with him for eternity, may we embrace our own exile. It comes from the hand of God. He gives us favor to thrive in the midst of it. And his kingdom triumphs through it. So may God give us eyes to see the opportunity of our exile. May we embrace it. And through our words, through our actions, may we seek the good of the place to which God has sent us. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, we confess that our default posture is to either hide out and escape or to conform to this time and this place. We feel a pull in both of those directions. God, we need your help to see that you have sent us into this exile, that we are not ultimately home here, but that this is our place, that you have sent us here with a very specific purpose. Pray you'd open our eyes to understand that more and more. We pray you would develop in us a deep appreciation that you have not just randomly and sporadically put us here. I pray, God, that we would see that you've given us favor to thrive here in the thriving of the greater place that you've put us. And I pray that we would have hope and confidence because it's through exile that your kingdom triumphs and we see no clearer picture of that than the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we come to this table this morning, we're reminded of our weakness in this. We're reminded that we need you to instill in us again a heart of faith, a heart of confidence that you're at work, As we come, God, would you open our eyes to the opportunities you've put before us, but would you remind us that those are only possible because of what Jesus has already done. And we pray that in his name. Amen.